Welcome back, folks, to the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast. On today's show, we have Len Davidson from the Neon Museum of Philadelphia. Yeah, we're going to get a little neon with you, and that's not fluorescent tubes. Stop calling them neon, okay? <laughs> he is, um, uh, while teaching organizational sociology at the University of Florida in the 70s, Len Davidson opened a roadside America-themed bar restaurant called The Gamery. Reflecting on this theme, a neon ceiling was erected in the bar, which led Davidson to apprentice at a neon sign shop before moving back to his hometown of Philadelphia in 1979. He gradually left academia, thankfully, and began a custom neon sign business that became a full-time pursuit in 1983. Since the late 70s, Davidson has also collected old neon signs, primarily in the south and northeastern U.S. The collection was named Neon Museum of Philadelphia. We're going to talk about it right now, but before we do, we've got to go light thing, right thing, Greg, with Satco. Go to satco.com, Greg Eric. That's right, and we're living life enlightened with the Satco Starfish. Simple, scalable, smart lighting solution connects you to your home for an enriched, improved, enhanced, enlightened life. It's a Wi-Fi connection. It gives you tape lighting, can lights, standard light bulbs, uh, outlets. Everything fits into this system, and it's color-changing, dimmable, so you create atmospheres, uh, spaces, define routines, set moods, whatever you need. You can get it done. Color changing, dimming, exterior rated. Satco's got it all, the starfish. Now with the starfish coming out hot, go to satco.com. Of course, proud members of the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors. That's right, neild.org. Get educated, get associated. What's up, Lynn Davidson? I'm doing good. How are you doing? Doing well. So, Greg, like we're going to get into I, yeah. neon here. I mean, lighting distributors hate neon. <laughs> <laughs> well, you shouldn't hate it necessarily, but we want to talk about it because we have actually never done a podcast on neon and mm -hmm. it's something I don't know all that much about, but I'm ac actually involved in a neon project now. So good timing. But before we get into all that, your, your bio said it here, but why neon? What, what got you so excited about neon? Why did you get into the business? Well, when I was doing this bar and restaurant, in Florida, um, we decided, uh, you know, as you mentioned before, to put up neon signs on the ceiling, and it was mesmerizing. It was um, it, it was an incredible bar to begin with, with Lionel electric trains and uh, kind of a roadside theme. We had a, a giant figure made by a Mardi Gras uh, craftsman in the front window, but the neon really uh, cap captured me and. I wasn't going to get tenure. I was spending all my time with this bar. So uh, my last year at Florida, before they were going to kick me out, I went to the sign shop that had made a neon sign for our front and had given us some advice on putting the neon up on the ceiling. And I said, I'll apprentice uh, with you one day a week. And it, it just got more and more interesting. Um, it was interesting both in terms of... Um, learning about a new medium you know i didn't really know any anything about uh neon very much other than things i had seen along the road but it was interesting as sociology too because the people who were making the neon signs uh in florida and later as i started roaming around to throughout the south and through new orleans i, I found lots of kind of old what i was considering old timers now i'm an old timer but these were people who had learned neon after World War II. Um, they had a, a certain 
ethos, which was kind of a, a blue collar, very creative way of looking at doing neon signs and uh, hearing their stories, learning about how, how they got into the trade, seeing pictures of the signs that they were making. It, it, was, um, it was sociology to me, but it was something that I gradually, instead of just um, capturing other people and capturing their stories, I started creating my own story. I started putting signs together, um, using neon as found object sculpture, and then d designing, you know, I just gradually got more and more into neon. Uh, four years later, I was totally out of academia and doing neon pretty much full time. And is that bar that you had still around? The bar didn't last very long. Um, it was a beautiful place and uh, students seemed to like it a lot, but we knew nothing about the bar and restaurant business, frankly. Um, sure. So uh, That's a problem. we had a... It was a big problem, yeah. Um, we had this great creative idea and we were able to put together a, a really interesting bar, but in order to get our liquor license, we had to have a 100-seat restaurant and that was our downfall. So we would be mobbed on the first two floors at the bar and then we'd be losing more money in the restaurant that we made at the bar. But that that's neither here nor there. That's not what I, I never do. understand anyone that enters the food and that business at that level it's so difficult man it I'm is sure people you can make a lot doing. of money but a lot of people that know what they're doing can make a lot of money doing it but man if you don't know what you're doing i, I don't think i i'm greg and i had a little foray into a side business that <laughs> went really south um let me ask you so mm -hmm. you sound like you in a way you know became um enamored or or captured by neon as a technology to convey a message. Um, like, it, there's something special about, you know, Hong Kong neon. You see, you see that the whole city of Hong mm -hmm. Kong is characterized by neon. Um, what is it about neon that, in messaging, that's so important to you? Well, for years and years, it, it conveyed a message, it conveyed heritage, really. So uh, if you go to Hong Kong as an example, uh, the city was just filled with neon. Uh, I'm, I'm told that if you rode these outdoor trolley cars in Hong Kong, and a friend of mine who'd been there said, you know, if you held a broomstick up, uh, you could break a million dollars worth of neon. It was all over the, over the street. There's different configurations of neon in different cities. But what, what initially interested me and what's more, become more interesting over time has been sort of the heritage that neon uh, relates to the, the shops, the stores, the restaurants, the buildings that utilize neon and tend to utilize them less today. Um, so at first it was really just the signs themselves that were very catchy and witty and they were really kind of a form of folk art. And, you know, I, I learned about it being folk art just from hanging out with these old timers. And if you think about it, um, you know, pe people who were making neon in the 50s and 60s, they had been exposed to like the golden age of comic books. There were lots of newspapers then, there was lots of cartooning. So the idea of making a sign was not so much to um, just put words together, but to do, to do pictures. And there was lots and lots of pictorial neon years ago. Um, 
so that was one of the one of the elements. You know, I've always been interested in in folk art, and so that was something that really enchanted me about about the signs. Uh, but so, what does the neon at, sign say, though? What is the medium saying above and beyond the individual things that are written on it or the symbols that are made? What is it saying about about Philadelphia, the workshop of the world, and what is it saying? Well, it's it's a record of the workshop of the world. You know that. I'm glad you bring that up because Philadelphia was between 1850 and 1950 was often called the workshop of the world. And we had, we manufactured lots and lots of things here. And we had tons of small mom and pop businesses that were serving bigger industries and uh, were serving consumers. So if you went every, every four blocks or so through Philadelphia, you would come to a shopping street and there were individual proprietors there. So what we're, we're, uh, we're preserving here is a Philadelphia that really doesn't exist anymore, or only a fraction of it exists. Because if you came to the city now, you might find maybe four shopping streets that have mom and pop stores on them, but th there's a lack of corner stores. You know, this is a story that's not uh, just... Um, true of Philadelphia, it's, it's true of the United States. I imagine it's somewhat true of Canada, Canadian cities too. You know, things are now delivered by Amazon. Um, if you wanted to start a business, uh, you, you wouldn't, you know, a lot of immigrants are starting businesses, I guess, but um, at least in Philadelphia. But the idea of being able to start your own business, hang out your own sign uh, is something that's kind of lost. So people come in here and for for young people they haven't seen these kind of signs and what we do is we show them both the signs and then we have stories attached to the signs so what i'm really getting at is uh, neon is telling a story it's telling a story about um philadelphia and the united states uh before the internet you know be before commerce changed radically it's an it's a it's the symbol of the entrepreneurial shopkeeper. It's his absolutely, it's his, yeah. It's a symbol of that, Greg. Yeah, and um, and they come in. You know, their children come in, or their grandchildren come in, and they and they tell stories. Uh, we collect oral history here, so people who know about the signs uh, write stories on three by five cards about uh, Horner Harder's restaurant or a hair replacement center, which, yeah, I'm looking at the signs as, as I'm sitting in here. Uh, so people come in and they're just mesmerized by the signs visually. And then uh, secondly, they, they become very interested in the history that the signs can. So regarding the technology itself, I have some questions on that. Maybe you can answer, sure. maybe you can't, but well, wh when did neon start? What was the first neon application? Well, the idea of neon signs or, or the idea of um, t taking, um, I'm forgetting the name now, of uh, neon, argon, krypton, xenon, there, there's an, a classification for those kinds of, of gases, rare gases, noble gases. So uh, the notion that you could put an electrical charge through those gases and that would glow is actually several hundred years old. But in the early 1900s, um, people were trying to utilize that idea uh, 
And generally, the history gets a little muddled, but most people point to a Frenchman in the early 1900s named George Claude, who developed uh, some electrodes that could go on the ends of the tube and a system for pumping the tubes with neon or argon gas. And the problem previously was that tubes had been manufactured that would give off a glow, but the electrodes would burn out in a short period of time. So Claude perfected a type of electrode that uh, that was long lasting. And then he started franchises and the franchises opened up around the world, you know, Hong Kong, in, in Australia, in, in New York, in Los Angeles, there were these Claude Neon franchises uh, that were pre prevalent in the 1920s and into the 1930s. And his patents ran out and people would steal away some of his employees and start opening up their own neon shops once they learned the technology from him. Is neon a mercury lamp? Is it mercury uh, vapor that makes it glow? Th there, there are two main gases that are used, neon gas and argon gas. The argon uh, without any mercury is like a pale purple color. You put mercury in and then the mercury vapor heats up and it makes it into a brighter blue. So when you start looking at the colors of what we call neon tubes, they're not necessarily pumped with neon gas. Uh, generally reds and pinks and oranges uh, are the neon colors, but you can get many more colors with argon and mercury fills. How many colors are there, do you know, from neon? Um, it depends how finely you want to uh, define the color differences. They're different manufacturers. So if you wanted to look at a color like turquoise, there might be four manufacturers, uh, each one making a couple of shades of turquoise. So I could, you know, I could say that there's two turquoises or I could say that there's 10 turquoises. Uh, based on subtle differences between manufacturers. But overall, the palette that, you know, in the heyday of neon, which is not so much today because it's harder and harder to get um, to, to get the different kinds of glass that, that you'd want to use. But, you know, back in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, um, you know, I, when I got into, into neon, we were using 40, 50 different colors, different shades. Is there any color neon can do? Yeah, brown. I haven't really seen that. Um, you don't, you, you know, neon lights are illuminated. So once you get into very dark colors, there are there is actually a, a very beautiful bromo blue, a dark blue color. But um, you know, as you start getting into black kinds of shades and brown sorts of shades, you don't really use neon for anything like that. And. Can you explain more on how it operates? I know you talked about the gases mixing, but is there a driver or a ballast involved? What all? Yeah, yeah, there, there's a transformer. So you would take household current, you know, 110, 120 volt current, and traditionally it would go to a transformer that would turn that into high voltage, generally between 3,000 and 15,000 volts, but um, low amperage, uh, 30 milliamps, 20 milliamps. So you could get shocked by that voltage and uh, you'd feel it, but it wouldn't injure you. Um, and for many years, we were using these big, heavy transformers that had copper coils inside that upped the voltage. Now there's electronic transformers, which are, which are much lighter. Uh, they're producing similar kinds of voltage, but um, they, they don't weigh as much. They're, they're safer. They turn off if there's a, a short in the system. So what, 
what they're doing is they're exciting the gas inside of the tube and making the gas glow. And as I was saying before, the main gases that we use commercially are neon and argon, but there's also phosphorescent powders that go inside of the tubes that give you different colors. And there's also basically colored glass or stained glass tubes. So if I wanted to get a red, for instance, I could use a clear tube just with neon gas, and that would give me kind of a red-orange color. But then there's stained glass, red stained glass, and I could get a ruby red color uh, of just clear stained glass. And then I could also put powder inside of that tube and then get a color called coated ruby glass. So there would basically be three typical reds that, that have been used. But as I was saying, it's harder to get the glass today than it used to be. Um, so if I wanted to get clear ruby or coated ruby glass, uh, it used to be made domestically by uh, Sylvania, by Corning in the United States. And now to get that glass, it's, it's typically imported from uh, over the years, there's been different countries that have manufactured the, the stained glass, uh, Italy, Germany, it's just harder and harder to get. And the same thing with the, with the people who are coating the tubes and putting phosphors in the tubes. Uh, they used to come out with additional colors every couple of years. Uh, if I wanted a kind of not so popular color, it would, be, it would be hard for me to get that. I might have to buy a big quantity. Uh, I used to be able to just call up a distributor and say, you know, I, I need three pounds of, a, you know, a particular kind of turquoise for a job. Now that turquoise might not be available or I might have to buy it in larger quantity because there's not as, as much demand for the glass as there used to be. And that, that kind of might answer some of my question, but you said three pounds. So when you do a sign, do you take mm -hmm. the glass and bend it yourself and form it? Or yeah, does I, it work? someone does. Uh, I'm not a bender. I'm, I'm a designer. So, uh, let's think in terms of um, a big neon shop and there aren't that many big neon shops anymore. There, there used to be probably 10 or 20 large shops in Philadelphia. Um, I don't think there is any, any large shop uh, in Philadelphia, but when you had a big shop, you would have people who would go out and talk to customers. Uh, then those salespeople might come back and make sketches or they'd go to a design department who would do sketching and would also make full-size patterns. So if you say that, uh, you know, you want to, you've got a store called Greg Seafood and you'd like a sign, salesman goes out, uh, makes a sketch, and you might call five different sign shops. So uh, one of them is going to say, um, uh, well, instead of just Greg Seafood, why don't we do a neon crab or a neon lobster? And another one might say, well, why don't we make the, neon crab so that his claws open and close and we animate it. But anyway, that's getting beyond where, what you're asking. So to, to fabricate that sign, to, you know, to make the, the Greg seafood sign, um, we'd agree on a design, then a full size paper pattern has to be made up that pattern. So you have pattern makers in a big shop, then the pattern makers take their pattern over to a tube bender. The tube bender fabricates the glass. They use Bunsen burners, specific um, specialized kinds of Bunsen burners to to bend the glass exactly to the pattern. And then they have to fill the glass with the neon or argon, uh, put it through a vacuum pump, take out the impurities. And 
once that once those tubes have been aged and we know that the neon tubes are good, then it leaves the the tube bender and it goes on to uh, installers or kind of fabricators. So you might be doing metalwork, plexiglass work. Um, if, if you know your Greg Seafood sign is in the shape of a fish, somebody's got to uh, bend the, the metal to the shape of the fish. Somebody else has to put the transformers inside of that metal box and wire them up, uh, drill holes so that the neon electrodes go into the box and are wired together. And then you go out and you install the sign. So you've got sign installers, people with, with crane trucks, if you're installing a, a big sign. So there might be, uh, you know, four or five different departments involved in the fabrication of a sign. All right. That's the I've old days. <clears throat> yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I've got a number. I've just always been interested. So Mike, you can sit back for a while. <laughs> <But> <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> you'll be involved. Uh, so length. Is there a certain length that neon can run where it has stops or do you have to go from both ends or how does that work? Well, it's an interesting question. Uh, I'm not a tube bender. So some of the technical questions about bending, I kind of have a sense of from being around benders, but I don't have, a, you know, perfect information. But what I can tell you is that when I uh, design a tube now, the benders that I take them, the tube to will tell me um, they can't really pump them beyond 12, 13, maybe 15 feet at most. And what's interesting is that I've, you know, I collect old neon and I've got lots of old neon tubes that are 20 feet long. So mm -hmm. when, I, when I show a 20-foot tube to a bender today, they're sort of amazed. And they talk about, well, maybe that different vacuum pumps then. Uh, I, I don't really know tech, technically why they could make longer tubes years ago than is typically done today. But that seems to be the case. Anyway, uh, if you're, and we're not talking about just the straight tube, we, you know, we're, we're measuring this tube out. So uh, again, if it's the name Greg, we could make the, the name Greg and do that in one 20 foot tube perhaps years ago. Now it might be, you know, two 12 foot tubes or two 10 foot tubes, whatever. What is the life of Neon? Um, the life seems to depend on uh, on window washers very much um, and on where you're putting the neon. Um, you know, outdoors, neon is subject to the elements. So if you are a good fabricator and installer, neon signs can last a very long time. They can last 20, 30, 40 years, and they can even last that long outdoors. But you've got to design them in a way so that you protect them from the elements. And not all inst installers are, you know, equally proficient at doing that, arranging the electrodes so that they don't get water on them, that kind of thing. Um, this same kinds of issues are true when you're doing window signs. Uh, you're putting signs in, in, you know, in a business on a wall or hanging in a window. Um, they're glass, so they're fragile. But if you just leave them alone, they are again going to last 20, 30, 40 years. The transformer might go before then. Uh, but most of the service calls I've had over the past 40 years have been somebody was messing with the tube. You know, uh, uh, a sign is in a window and a customer knocks into the window or a window washer uh, didn't handle the tube properly when they were trying to move the tube away from the window so they could wash the glass. So there, 
there's breakage issues uh, just from not being careful. Um, and it also depends on just the quality of the of the bending that you did. You know, I've seen new benders make tubes that, um, you know, that last three days or that last a month or that develop pinholes with a, a bender who's got good experience and has been, uh, you know, knows what they're doing. I, I never have that kind of problem or you have that problem very rarely. So like any ma manufactured item, you know, you're going to have a little bit of failure, but it really depends very much uh, with neon on the, the the workmanship of the tube bending and the workmanship of the people who are doing the installation. So with a neon sign, if it's if if it's two colors, is it typically two tubes? Then if it's a red and a blue sign, one's a red tube, one's a blue. Not necessarily. Um, there's two different gases, so you can't combine a tube that's pumped with neon with another part of the tube that's pumped with argon but you can splice colors together and you you can get red not just uh with neon you could also get ruby red uh pumped with argon gas and mercury and you it's, it's a little bit lighter shade but it's still a red so i can so i could splice together or a bender could splice together for me uh, a whole bunch of colors uh pinks uh which would typically be done with neon but you can get uh argon pinks uh reds you could get argon based reds. so you don't have to necessarily have two different tubes for two different colors and how do you determine energy use of a neon sun um you look at the transformer and it gives you a rating of how many uh amps are drawn by the transformers uh the transformers that we use now, the electronic ones, are kind of self-regulating. So I might have a transformer that will draw up to two amps, but if I use that transformer on a short length of tubing, uh, it may only draw half an amp or a quarter of an amp or, or one amp. So uh, we, we have amp meters. I've been doing that lately because uh, in our neon museum, we, we have motion detectors and the motion detectors have a limit of about 10 amps so when i put together a bunch of signs and run them on one motion detector uh i want to you know get a rating and make sure that i'm not approaching 10 amps on those so uh, you know i i can measure signs individually and find out how many amps they're drawing and or i can measure a whole group of them together and you've, you've kind of alluded to a few things but is neon still a viable light source oh absolutely i mean there's there's i don't want to give the impression that neon's not being made um but the quantities of neon being made are are lower and the ways neon is used is is probably a bit different now uh there's a lot more interest in neon artistically uh artists want to use neon but artists typically don't want to spend two or three or four years burning their fingers and uh, you know, cutting their hands to become a bender. So they might make a design and bring it to a bender and then utilize that in a piece of artwork. To actually be uh, a two bender takes takes a long apprenticeship period to get any good. So, but you're really asking me about how neon is used. Um, LEDs have cut dramatically into the market for neon. And as I was saying, where there were, you know, dozens of sign shops in in a city there may still be dozens of sign shops but 
you know, if I called up 10 sign shops in Philadelphia and said, would you make me a neon sign? Nine of them would say, oh, you don't want neon, you want LEDs. And that's not because neon's not a viable option. It's, it, there's a lot of reasons. One of the reasons being that there are fewer neon vendors around. Sign shops used to have uh, either trade vendors they'd bring their patterns to or in-house vendors. You know, they had enough demand for neon that they'd have someone bending the glass uh, in their shop. So for uh, a sign shop that doesn't have a bender and doesn't want to go to the trouble of learning about neon, it's a lot easier to get LED tubes and have them put together. And, uh, you know, you typically order, order them from China. The, you know, I, I don't want to get into one medium is better than another, but I will tell you that among neon people, they'll, you know, they'll say, well, even a monkey could do LEDs. In other words, it doesn't take the same levels of skill to, to shape uh, plastic tubes for LED designs as it does to be a tube bender and, and shape them into neon designs. Is there so a, that's one is of the reasons. A visible difference? Can, if you look about a sign, can you tell if it's LED or neon? Yeah, I can, but um, the average person may not be able to. Yeah, I've seen some pretty uh, nasty LED neon imitators, like pretty darn yeah. good. And they're kind yeah, of rubbery too. Very... They have like this rubbery uh -huh. material that you, you don't need yeah. to have any. Like the days of the, you know, the Hong Kong man sitting on the corner with a blowtorch in glass, which I've seen pictures yeah. of. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and he's making this giant, gigantic sign on the street side, side of his apartment building in, in Hong Kong. I've seen, you've seen those pictures? Have you not seen them doing the glass on the side I've of the road? I've never seen anybody doing it outdoors like that. No, I've seen oh, people you have the, you have the, In Hong Kong, you would see them sitting outside. There'd be laundry really? hanging above them and stuff. Oh, yeah. No kidding. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, um, but yeah. So, but I mean, is, is there a different effect? Is it all nostalgia that you you continue to use neon or is there a... A real benefit in its in its um in its deployment. well is there a real benefit in having uh, a craftsman do ornamental plaster work for your ceiling medallions mm. versus getting plastic ceiling medallions at home depot and tacking them up to your ceiling you know part of it is the craftsmanship and we could talk you know this is really sociology that we're talking about but the the decline of craftsmanship uh across the world at least in Western developed countries. Uh, if I want to get, you know, nice brickwork done or, or plastering done or whatever, it's, it's hard to do. And the same thing with people working with their hands in general and having the skills to do neon. So there's a certain value in the craftsmanship. It does look different. You can see differences, uh, but not everybody's going to see the differences for all the applications. Uh, there's also a certain funkiness to neon that I don't see in LEDs. And that gets to what I was talking about before, the animated signs, you know, the cartoony kinds of signs that were done in neon and are still done in neon. We recently did a job for a guy who makes custom fishing rod covers. And we made a five point animation where uh, it's in two windows. In one window, the man is casting a fishing rod. And in the other window, there's water. And he eventually catches a fish and the, the rod bends in the first window and a fish pops out in the second window and it fights back and forth. So there's two fish on two lines. So I don't know if you could actually do that same uh, kind of animation in LEDs, but it wasn't really a question with this customer. He wanted an authentic neon sign. 
he wanted something that was really spectacular and animated and we were able to do that for him uh, so i don't get very involved with leds if you ask me a lot of questions about them i won't be able to answer them you know i've just at this point in my life i'm not really trying to um, make money out of a sign business sure. and if i was i would probably learn more about leds and do some led signs but i don't really need to do that so i'm just focusing on neon at this point how does the, the the sign that you just mentioned how does it change is there a timer built into the transformer yeah there's an animator so there's five different transformers three for oh. the three fishing rods one for the the rod going back one for the rod going forward one for the rod where his arm comes back and the fishing rod curves because it's called a fish so you have three transformers for those three fishing rods and arm combinations and then you've got two additional transformers lighting up the the fish uh the two different fish and it's much easier to program uh animation today than it used to be oddly enough and i say oddly enough because there's much less animation in the heyday of neon there were tons of animated signs and they would use mechanical flashers so you have a motor that would turn around and it would be attached to fingers that would go up and down uh, and make electrical connections that would run to a transformer and make that transformer go go off and on uh, so the way that you made that program there were a couple of companies uh, Timematic and Sinatrol were two that come to mind where you tell them that I want transformer on for three seconds and then I want transformer two on for two seconds and you just give them the pattern and they would cut out uh, cams on on these mechanical flashers uh, and they, they had to time the, the cuts in the cams to your, you know, two seconds for transformer number one being on three seconds for number two being on and so on so it was kind of a, a, a vanishing skill I don't even know how how well you could do if you wanted to get those old-fashioned kinds of animators anymore but there are now companies that will make electronic transformers and I could just you know make up a chart with listing my five uh, transformers and it could go over I, I've had animations that's run as long as as two minutes and just make a graph of uh, how I want the transformers to go on and off over that two minute period. You know so what's it, interesting, Greg, you, you, you wanna keep going on that? Cause I wanna change gears a little bit and ask- Yeah, let me just ask one question. more thing. Is, is, <laughs> is there such thing then as a neon manufacturer or as a sign shop technically the manufacturer taking the components and making it themselves? Um, I'm not exactly sure what you mean. You're talking about manufacturing the, the tubes, right? Yeah, I'm, the, I'm just trying to relate people, it to the lighting world where there's fluorescent tube manufacturers, ballast manufacturers. The, yeah, so there are manufacturers who, um, who make the neon glass typically in four foot or five foot uh, sections and then they will coat the glass with phosphorescent powders. So the people who then turn those straight tubes into neon signs are not the same people who manufacture the glass if that's what you're okay. asking yeah that is yep. yeah and that's All what right. i was saying there are fewer of these it, it, i think there are fewer manufacturers and there's less of that straight glass available to people in 
in the neon business than there used to be. It's not that they're not a, not there, but it's supply and demand's you know more expensive and longer time periods to get that glass than it used to be. So this idea of craftsmanship, yeah, um, yeah, the other idea of understanding the physical mechanics of something, mm -hmm. how a machine works. Yeah, right. artisanal craftsmanship, this kind of thing. I think your museum kind of is kind of um, nostalgic for an age of makers and an age of <laughs> uh, people that understood how mechanical components. Like one of the things that's – I mean I tried to make yeah. a machine myself years ago. I'm not going to get into it, what it was. The guys mm -hmm. that were designing it were all very old. And it was a mm -hmm. mechanical machine that would use different right. things to make a mechanical process, right? And people are very obsessed with bits, computer bits and and this and programming mm -hmm. computers and there's something lost like even when you look at the u.s space program you know they sent those things to the moon on mechanical proficiency not on a not on like digital electronic digital. proficiency you know what i'm saying and so there were makers there were people that knew the tolerances of things in a feel way like you're talking about someone who's make, making an artisanal neon sign and this is the 50s or the 60s, there would be guys that knew that the glass, if they bent it like this, and the, if they took the angle mm -hmm. like that, and that's too much of an angle. And then you have people coming to, how the hell did he do that? There's actually people saying, like, how the heck did they go to the moon back in? They don't even think they could redo the way they did it back then. Uh -huh. um, yeah. You know, so are, is it nostalgia that you have there? What What is it that you're kind of longing for? Well, it's culture. I don't, I don't like the word nostalgia, although you could... You could use that word, but it's a different culture when you're manufacturing things mechanically, when you have those hand skills. So when people come into our museum, they're reflecting on uh, a workshop of the World City where, where literally there were workshops. People were putting these, putting things together. You know, it's not the first time there's been this kind of change, uh, you know, the change towards digital technology. Uh, you could look at the Industrial Revolution where people were, more people were on farms. Uh, there was like hand craftsmanship. Uh, people were, you know, manufacturing small items out of their houses. And then there was movement away from that form of, of manufacture, that form of commerce towards working in big factories. Uh, in, outside of Philadelphia, we have a museum called the Mercer Museum. Uh, Dr. Mercer had the insight around the turn of the century uh, when people were throwing away their tin snips and, uh, you know, their fire, their homemade fireplaces and uh, all of that kind of craftsmanship that he was, he was documenting, he was just picking it up. It, it was of no use anymore because things could now be made in, in factories and, you, you know, you could have production lines and, and knock off thousands of things that it would take, you know, individual uh, craftsmen a long time to do. So that was one major change. Once the internet came in uh, and digital technology came in, the, the remaining craftsmen who might've worked for the factories or might've supplied things for the factories, they're, they're dwindling in number uh, as their age. We have the same thing with up. lamp parts. Yeah. Like okay. in, 
in Toronto, you used to be able to find lamp part stores, like people that would have make custom mm-hmm. lamp shades and they would make, you know, they would have all these different kind of lamp components and people would make custom lamps. But, you know, what's interesting is that um, right now, Japan and Germany and parts in North parts of Northern Italy and Switzerland and France and these countries there, they have a bunch of companies. They, in Germany, they're called Mittelstand and in Japan, they have a name for them. And I was reading a, um, an article on one of these companies and, and one of these Japanese companies makes scissors for hairdressers and the owner of the, everyone in the factory is over 60 years old. There's no young people in there. And the, the, they make so many. They make scissors and export them, like seven thousand dollar pair of scissors or something like that. Okay, mm-hmm. so that's what you're talking about. And the owner of the factory is like, yeah, every every pair of scissors we make has its own personality. So he's saying uh-huh. stuff like that. Yeah. And it depends on who makes it. Like, um, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not going to start pretending I know Japanese names, but he was listing off the different crafts, yeah. and he's got a hundred of them in the factory. And they get orders for these scissors, and he's like, yeah, everyone has their own personality, and they come in a special box. And it's beautiful. The piece of the, this piece, this tool is beautifully made. And Germany has tons of these kinds of things. And so does Italy and France. And these businesses are going out of business. Like Mm -hmm. there's nobody to take on the management of the business. Not because they don't make quality products. It's because they don't have any craftsmen. They don't have anybody that wants to start in their 20s and start making scissors every day for the rest of their life. Yeah, we have the same thing. Exactly the same issue um kids who might be good at working with their hands are not really encouraged to do that they're told to go to college Mm -hmm. so instead of you know in the neon business there were families uh your your father or your uncle might have been a tube bender or might have worked in a sign shop and then they bring the kids along but uh the businesses die off because the the young people don't want to go into those family businesses anymore uh, they're not as interested in being craftsmen. They're interested in getting college education and do, doing something that they see as more professional. Yeah, like taking on $200,000 worth of debt when you're 21 years old. That's <laughs> a great plan. Sure. Wonderful. Um, yeah, I got a piece of paper that says I'm smart. But no, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to make fun of that too much. But I have a um, – I think there's a problem with inflation in academia and in the, in the mm-hmm. institution right now in terms of cost and value proposition on the other end. But that's a whole other yeah. conversation. But yeah, it so is a big conversation. Yeah, it's a different conversation. But the, the craftsman's ethic – has not i mean greg what did you call it when i would we dump the stupid men in the trades or something you told me like we were talking to this one um uh where were we? we were talking to someone i'm like huh i mean a bricklayer you know makes a hell of a lot of money in toronto right now i think it's like 85 dollars an hour these guys command to show up on a job site um and you know i i don't i think that we we're not doing a good enough job in in i don't know if honor is the right word but you know, giving craftsmen and, and tradesmen a, um, a sense of, of contribution to the society that matters. And it, it's inherent in what they do. You build a home. What a beautiful home. Who built that? Um, mm-hmm. Building things is very, very important. Um, and so I, I you know, I, I really enjoyed our conversation, but it made me reflect on not just the lighting industry, but then on a larger issue of, you know, the our society seems to be valuing one thing over another at, without any real evidence that the one thing is better than the other. Absolutely true. Yeah, it totally makes sense. I, I couldn't agree more. And um, an example <laughs> in that uh, my father was a school teacher and it was 
obvious to my parents that I should go to college. I ended up getting a PhD, but I always had a knack for working with my hands. Mm. I had uncles who were shop teachers. And so it just seems like uh, fate worked out to, to take me away from teaching college students and talking to, to undergrads who didn't want to necessarily be in the classes anyway, to actually making something with my hands that, uh, you know, I could see the product of my labor. It was much more mm. satisfying to me. But I'm really the exception. You know, the, the opposite is my wife uh, was a counselor at a community college and she had tons of kids who would come into the community college and they were not really academically oriented, but they were pushed to go to college and they might have been wonderful as bricklayers or as plumbers or as, as electricians. And they could have perhaps made as good, if not better salaries doing that than pushing themselves into academic disciplines that were not really what they were geared towards. So I, yeah, so, it's it's a societal issue that you're talking about. And and before we let you go, I, I do have two questions on the museum itself. Please, yeah. How many how many neon signs are there? Well, in the room that I'm in, there's I don't know 110 something like that. We have a hallway. We're part of a, a block long building, and uh, the space that I was given it was not really big enough for the collection. So I negotiated that I could put. Uh, uh, another 25 signs in this hallway. The, the ceilings are about 25 to 30 feet tall in this building. So there's plenty of room there. And then we have another building, uh, which is part of Drexel University. And we've got another 30 signs over there. We call that our annex. Uh, you don't pay anything to go over to Drexel. You just walk around the windows and you see the signs in these uh, large windows in a former Firestone building. But uh, here overall, there's probably, I don't know, 130, 140 signs that you could see uh, in the museum and in the, uh, the the corridors, the shared corridors here. And this could be in the museum or anywhere, but what is your favorite neon sign of all time and why? <laughs> well, I have different kinds of favorites. Uh, to my left, there's a giant neon hot dog from a place called <laughs> Levis's Hot Dogs. And uh, it was made by perhaps the greatest sign man in Philadelphia history, a guy named Joe Feldman, uh, who made just incredible signs. People told stories about the signs that he made. But anyway, that, that's one reason I like the hot dog. But the, the other reason is that uh, in the 1950s, I was, my father kind of, uh, got me addicted to basketball. We used to go to see the Philadelphia Warriors. So I'm really dating myself because now the Warriors are in Golden State. Anyway, uh, that was in West Philadelphia. And there was this hot dog place that my father went to and that his father went to. And so that after the basketball games, he would take me over to Levis's and uh, you'd get a hot dog and a fish cake there. And it was a business that had started in 1895. It had giant murals on the walls for people who were in the 50-year club, who had been going to Levis's for 50 years. Uh, it was such a, such a ground-in part of, of Philadelphia that um, when the place closed, people were just brokenhearted. And when we got the, this neon sign, we put it up on top of the building and we had a Levis's 99th anniversary relighting ceremony. Uh, and hundreds of people, uh, flooded the particular bar where we put the, the sign on top of. So from a sentimental standpoint, Levis's is, is, is my favorite, but it's not really um, aesthetically the most 
fantastic sign. It's a giant hot dog. You know, we've we've got. I have a four point animation sign here uh, from a photo supply company from the 1950s where the aperture of the camera opens and closes. That's one of my favorites just for the the aesthetics of how they design that sign. And it's a double sided 50s camera built in in metal. So that that would be another type of favorite. Um, but I can go on and on. I've got, you know, I've, it's like asking who's your favorite kid, you know, I can, <laughs> they all have their positive and negative qualities. But um, you know, they're, they're all favorites in some ways. Hmm. Well, Len, uh, it's been a, uh, a pleasure to um, <laughs> yeah. unpack this. Um, neon signs are, you know, they, they, each of them, I guess they have their own story and they have, and what you're they saying there is each of these signs represents somebody's life work or something that meant something to somebody. And yeah, I just want to pull one of these down. Uh, we have these guide cards here. So every wall of the museum has cards that tell you stories about the signs. I'd written a book called Vintage Neon, and this museum is really an outgrowth of it, where the book shows the signs and then tells you the stories about the business, the sign maker, and so on. So that's what our guide cards are, are here for, too. And I'm glad you're, you're picking up on that, that the signs are not just signs, they're they're representatives of, of culture and, and they tell stories. Well, folks, I'll tell you this. Uh, when my kid was playing rep hockey, Greg Eric, we'd go to all these little towns in Ontario and they'd all have these little weird museums with stuff, canoe museums, <laughs> tool museums from uh, uh, lumberjacks in Ontario and you'd see the tools they would use. Visit museum, folks, because it, it, there, you, there's always some sort of cool theme and you can extrapolate it further. But before we extrapolate any more, we got to talk about the gangsters, Greg Eric, at SATCO. Go to satco.com. That's SATCO light thing, right thing, Greg? That's right, and we talked about telling stories. Now, there's his LED. It's not neon, but you can do that with their starfish. They have bulbs, string light, tape light, recess cans, outlets, switches, color changing, dimming, exterior rated. You can transform your house with their system, so check it out. And, of course, proud members of the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors. Go to NAILD.org. That's right. Get associated if you made it to the end. Our colleagues and friends for listening, we thank you always. This is coming out in the new year, but I'm going to say Happy New Year to you. Bye for now.